certainly great at times, and he was terrible at times. But on the whole, he was one of the greatest people who've ever lived. It's been said that there is no greatness without responsibility, probably because great responsibility gives one an opportunity to succeed or to fail in the human spotlight. Responsibility alone doesn't make one great, but succeeding when one has significant responsibility is a mark of greatness. In the human realm, I think of Chamberlain and Churchill. Both had responsibility. One succeeded because he used that responsibility in a positive way, and the other one did not. One could be considered great, Churchill, and the other one, which might have been a very nice man, but was not considered great by historians, and that would be Chamberlain. The reason I bring that up is, as Christians, we have great responsibility. There's an old Latin proverb, to whom much is given, much is expected. And we have been given much. We could actually adapt that a bit and say, to, whom, to, to the one who has received much revelation, there is much responsibility that goes along with that revelation. So as we soak in the Word of God on a regular basis, our responsibility level goes up, and we have an opportunity to shine as well. Not in the human spectrum necessarily, but in the divine spectrum. The Bible certainly implies that not states that angels are watching us. Now we're a testimony, we're a witness to angels. We've been given great responsibility. And while we may not have been given the responsibility to rule a nation, we have been given the responsibility to represent Christ well. And frankly, in the big scheme of things, when it's all said and done, the responsibility to represent Christ well is going to be a greater responsibility than the responsibility of ruling nations. By the time we reach 2 Samuel chapter 9, David has had tremendous responsibility for quite some time. And for the most part, he's been successful. And he's been a God-honoring leader. My point is, he's been, his greatness has been established by the time we get to this literary unit, which is 2 Samuel chapters 9 through 20, which, is, which are often called the court narratives. His greatness has already been established. I love the way the Holy Spirit did it. Before he points out the biggest negative in David's life, he lets us know that David was a great person. For the most part, chapters 9 through 20 are relatively negative. They're not the most positive aspect in David's life. Either he is going to, either these chapters will be reporting his sin or the consequences of that sin. The one exception is chapters 9 and 10 are subject to this evening. This is a transitional section. It's quite a large bit of information, but it's not something we can't cover in one unit. But it's transitional between the time of David's greatness and the time of David's great failure. That's what we'll be studying Next week is David's great sin with Bathsheba and the, consequent, or the subsequent sin that followed after that. Certainly, his murder of Uriah the Hittite being at the top of the list. The key idea in chapter 9 is the idea of kindness. The key word in chapter 9 is one of the most important Hebrew words in all of Hebrew Bible, and that's the word chesed. Several times in chapter 9, we learn of David's chesed. And that makes sense, too, because if David is going to be a God-honoring leader, if you're going to be a God-honoring representative of God, then we need to reflect who God is to other people. If we just reflect ourselves to other people, we're not representing anybody but ourselves. But if we want to represent God before other people, then the, the way we act needs to be the way that God would have acted in that situation, at least short of the fact that we're not God. We can't do it perfectly, but God's working through us. 
David was a God-honoring leader because he knew God exhibited chesed toward him. Chesed being translated variously as loving kindness, kindness, love, loyal love, mercy, grace. All of that's bound up into one word. But God had exhibited chesed toward David, and he will continue to exhibit chesed toward David. It's David's, watch, responsibility to exhibit chesed toward others. And if that's David's responsibility, I have to tell you tonight, that's your responsibility too. We can't say that we're a proper representative of Christ if we don't exhibit Christ-like characteristics in our dealings with other people. If we're lying and cheating and, and fussing and fighting and fuming and punching people out or whatever we may do, you're going to be hard-pressed to find that as Christ-like behavior in the Scripture. Now, Christ was not a pushover. He stood for the truth in a very firm way. But he demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were sinners, he died for us. So this is part of David's greatness. I know sometimes we think David was great because of the military campaigns. He was great because of the way he fought Goliath. He was great because of the way he administered the, the political situation in Israel. And all those are true. In fact, we're going to talk about some of the military campaigns again in just a moment, which marked part of his greatness. But David was great at his core because he reflected God to other people. He was the recipient of Hesed, and he was a giver of Hesed. It's the same way with the forgiveness. We are the recipients of great forgiveness on God's part. But far too often, far too, it's far too common for Christians to receive forgiveness, but not to want to give forgiveness. It's the same principle. David received Hesed. He received God's grace, his loving kindness, his mercy. And he gave mercy when it was appropriate. But David, like Jesus Christ, was not a pushover. There were times when David took action, severe action against others who deserved it. Because he had to. As God's representative, he had to take severe action. We're going to see that in the very next chapter. But the key word in this chapter, and it'll transition into the next, is chesed. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, Verses 14 through 17, you, you probably will recall this incredible friendship that David had with Saul's son, Jonathan. And one of the things that those two men did is they made a promise to each other. And one of the promises that David made to Jonathan was that he would never forget the covenant of friendship that had bound them together. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis and a great friend of his in World War I. C.S. Lewis had a friend in World War I. They were in a foxhole together. And they both decided at that moment that if one of them got killed, the other one would take care of the family of the one who had, who had been killed. And C.S. Lewis did that. He took the, the young man's mother and sister into his home until the day that the mother died. Long, long time. And you know what? Just like Jonathan and David, a lot of people don't understand that. There, there are some wicked, wicked rumors that have gone around about C.S. Lewis and this woman that was living in his house, how scandalous that was. It was his friend's mother that he was taking care of. It's amazing to me how people project their own sins onto other people. And we're going to see that in the next chapter, too. But David had made a promise to Jonathan that he would take care of Jonathan's family. And David thoroughly intended to fulfill that promise. So David contacts this man named Ziba, who was a servant of Saul's, and asks him if some family member of Saul had any kind of special need. Now, this is after everything's calmed down. So David takes the initiative. That's another thing about David's greatness. He didn't sit back and wait for the opportunity to, to come to him. So many people say, well, I want to serve the Lord. 
Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm not doing anything. You know, have you made a phone call? Have you volunteered? No, I haven't volunteered. I'm waiting for somebody to ask me. Volunteer. It's okay. Some people, if this is a gross exaggeration, but some people stay in bed in their pajamas with the covers up to their chin and say, Lord, use me. Well, it's certainly possible, but it might be good to go ahead and get up. It might be good to get, go ahead and get up and get dressed and get out there where you can be more likely to be used. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? That's that word we're talking about. For Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness? Show the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Now this son's name is going to be Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth we've met before when this whole line of succession thing came into play. Mephibosheth was a young child when David first became king. He was crippled because his nurse dropped him as they were fleeing. He was never considered a threat to the Davidic throne. It's almost as if David ignores him in terms of a threat. Now he doesn't ignore him in terms of doing a kindness for him. But we've met this man Mephibosheth before only in passing. And I said we'd get back to him again. This fellow Ziba is an interesting guy. In this chapter, he comes across as pretty good. Later on, though, he's going to come back again. And we're going to find out he's not such a good guy. Mephibosheth is a fairly good guy. He's going to be falsely accused later on in these narratives of not supporting David. He actually does the whole time. It's Ziba that is actually the bad guy. But we're introduced to him here, at least in this chapter. It's not a a bad thing. He's not presented in a bad light. So David immediately sends for Mephibosheth, and he restores Saul's personal estate to him and supports Mephibosheth on a royal pension. That's a pretty good deal. That's showing chesed, loving kindness, grace, mercy, loyal love to this man. In humility, Mephibosheth really doesn't know what's going on. So he first refers to himself as a servant of David. In verse 6, and then he calls himself a dog. Why are you doing, I'm a dog, why are you doing this to me or for me? One of the things that David does that is really incredible, Mephibosheth has a little farm. Some distance away from Jerusalem, he has a little farm. He instructs Ziba, who again was one of the former servants of Saul, to take his men and work the farm for Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is to come to Jerusalem and eat at the king's table. So David is showing extraordinary kindness, extraordinary generosity to this man. David expresses greatness in leadership by keeping his word to Jonathan. How many times have we said in our study of the Old Testament that one of the key ideas is God keeps his promise? David is showing Yahweh-like characteristics here by keeping his promise. He shows kindness to someone Mephibosheth, who cannot help him in any way. You know what I mean? Mephibosheth can do nothing to return the favor. Nothing at all. Sometimes people show kindness, but they show it in order to get a return of some sort, like putting some money into an investment and expecting there to be some sort of future return on that. That's not true kindness. That's a bribe. 
So perhaps it's an investment, but it's not true chesed. David is exhibiting chesed to someone who can't do anything for him in return. Just like God showed chesed to you and to me. And we can't do anything in return. Oh, yes, we, we can serve him and we can praise him as if God has to have that to be happy. It's to our benefit to serve him and to praise. So David is exhibiting Yahweh-like characteristics by blessing someone, by showing chesed to them. And this person can do nothing for David. He's still crippled. He's got no money. He's got no influence. There's no indication here that he's got a particular intelligence that can help David with some sort of future project. One thing that strikes me as wrong, I heard on the radio just within the last 10 days, and I'm not going to say the name because that's not important, but this particular surgeon had an ad on the radio. I won't even say what type of surgery he does, but he had an ad on the radio, and part of the ad was the sportscaster who was doing the voiceover for him was telling exactly to the penny, and it was $10,000, that this man had given to Toys for Tots. Isn't he a great guy? You need to come in and see this fellow. He's given, he puts his money where his mouth is. He's given $10,000 to Toys for Tots. It turned me off so bad that if I ever had to have that kind of surgery, I certainly wouldn't go to that guy. Because that's not charity. You know what that is? That's advertising. We used to have a fellow that, goes to our, that went to our church that was the personal security head for a very large furniture magnate in this region of the country. I won't narrow it down any more than that. And he told me personally, he said, when we would go out to charitable events, and this fellow did a lot of charity, he said, we could never get started until the TV cameras were there. Because if it wasn't filmed, it wasn't going to happen. Because they were going to use it for free advertising on the 5 or 6 o'clock news meet. That's not charity. That's not exhibiting chesed. That's a business deal. I want to point out to you here that David wasn't doing a business deal. This wasn't a future investment. He is demonstrating his greatness by fulfilling his responsibility as the leader and pouring forth God's chesed out on someone that could not help him in any form or fashion. The theme of kindness then carries over into the next chapter. David wants to show kindness to this man who's lost his father. The man's not going to let him do it, but you have a great theme of, of kindness in chapter 9. It comes into chapter 10, and then it's going to come to an abrupt halt. And there's going to be another characteristic of God that David exhibits as part of his greatness. It's going to be justice. It starts off with Hesed, and then it's going to move to justice. One of the arguments that I hear from skeptics and from non-Christians from time to time is, God, is who you say he is. If he acts in the way that you say he acts, if he loves everybody, and you've heard this too, then how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Heard that before? I've, I've heard it dozens of times, dozens upon dozens of times, and you probably have too. And what they're doing is they're misunderstanding God in a tremendous way because God does exhibit chesed. He does exhibit love. But that's not the only part of his character. There's another part of God's character, and that is his righteousness and his justice. And if exhibiting mercy would ever violate his righteousness or justice, then he can't exhibit mercy. Now, he's exhibited mercy to everyone in the way he paid for the sins of the world with the death of Christ on the cross. But we're going to see in chapter 10, Kindness initially, and then 
justice throughout the rest of the text. This chapter is different. I want to have you recall to mind before we get too far into this chapter, what happened a couple chapters ago, which in real time for us has probably been at least a month ago. So I want to refresh your memories on what happened back in chapter 8 before we get into what happens in chapter 10, because these military campaigns come up again. Now, in in chapter 8, we learn that one of the first things David did when he consolidated his power is he moved south against the Philistines, south and west against the Philistines, and consolidated his power against the people who had been the traditional enemies of Israel. When he had accomplished that, David moved into Moab. That was a head-scratcher we saw when we studied this, as to why would David go to Moab? His great-great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. His parents fled to Moab. And we speculated at the time over a Jewish tradition. It's not in the Bible, so I want to stress that. This is not something I would even write down in my notes. But there is a Jewish tradition that says that the reason that David went after Moab, after cleaning up the Philistine problem, was that while David's parents were in the care of the king of Moab, the king of Moab turned on David and murdered his parents. Again, that is not a biblical notion, but it is a a part of Jewish tradition. It's part of Jewish history, which doesn't make it false, by the way. There are a lot of things that are history that are not part of the Bible that are absolutely true. The difference is, I wouldn't die for that one. But that may, it may possibly explain why David would go after Moab, which on the surface at least seems like they're a friend. After that, David goes after this man called Hadan Ezer. Hadan Ezer can be loosely understood to mean Baal is my helper, something along those lines. The irony here is Baal wasn't too much help, help to Hadanezer because when David goes up and fights him, he not only defeats Hadanezer, but he runs him, as we saw last time, clear off the map, all the way back to the great river, the Euphrates in Babylon. Keep this in mind, because, by the way, this guy's going to come up again in tonight's narrative. But for now, he's been run clear off the map hundreds of miles away. After he finishes with Hadadezer, then he goes up there and fights Aram. Aram is a group that had tried to help Hadadezer. They're all Arameans in one way. They're all Syrians in one way. But they had these little pockets of city-states. So we see the final military campaign of chapter 8 was that David went down and conquered Edom. So when we get all the way through with chapter 8, this is kind of what the map looks like. David has peace on every side, except for one. There's, there's one enemy that's still out there. It wasn't a very powerful enemy, but there is still one, and that's this country, Ammon. One of the ways that you can remember where these countries are, just remember in this order, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. You can go from the bottom to the top, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Well, Adam, um, Ammon is right on the other side of the north part of the Dead Sea. It's modern-day Jordan, and the city that we're going to talk about in just a few moments where this great battle happened is the modern-day city of Amman, Jordan, the capital of Jordan. So if if you prefer to put things in a more contemporary context, think Jordan. That's where today's battles are going to take place, or at least the battles in today's narrative. This chapter, chapter 10, can be outlined with three points. The first five verses describe the humiliation of David's envoys when they go to speak to the Ammonites. That's chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. 
This, by the way, is where the worm is going to turn. David is exercising chesed in the beginning, but the way they treat this delegation is going to turn chesed into justice. And it's pretty severe, justice. The next aspect in this chapter that can be in terms of outlying is in verses 6 through 14. The Ammonites and their Aramean allies flee, jo- flee Joab. They're defeated by Joab. And then finally, in a separate battle, David is going to defeat the Arameans. This is where this Hadamezer is going to come back into the mix. Now, in chapter 10, the first two verses read this way. Now, it happened afterwards that the king of Ammon, the king of the Ammonites, died, and Hanun, his son, became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness, same words in the last chapter, same thing he did to Mephibosheth. I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. Assuming that the Nahash of verse 2 is the same Ammonite king that Saul had previously defeated, and we know this Ammonite king reigned for 40 years, the kindness that he that is referenced in this verse is probably some kindness that he showed David when David was fleeing from Saul's presence. It's not recorded. That's why it's a bit sketchy. But this man, this king, Nahash, had shown David some kindness, and now David wants to repay that kindness. We must note here that this is a genuine act on David's part. He's following through with exactly what he had in the previous chapter. He had no ulterior motives for helping Mephibosheth. None whatsoever. It was a genuine act of kindness, chesed, on David's part. This, too, is a genuine act. I've got to establish that because not everybody's going to buy it. But it is a genuine act. No ulterior motive. No hidden agenda. Then, as verse, verse 2 continues, But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes, or the counselors, this might be understood, of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has not David sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? That was not even on David's radar. He had already conquered everybody he felt like he needed to conquer. That wasn't part of this. He was, he was performing an act of hesed, an act of kindness. And these evil people transferred their own evil thoughts and their own evil motivations onto a good man. That's not the first time this ever happened, and I guarantee it's not the last time. It happens all the time. People make, make accusations of others who are perfectly innocent. I grant sometimes they may not be, but by and large, oftentimes they're perfectly innocent. And what we're doing is we're transferring our own evil motivations and our own ideas onto that other person. In other words, what they're really saying is, that's what I would have done if I was in your situation. That's why I'm sure that you're cheating me, because I cheat all my customers. The people that I have seen, oftentimes, that are so concerned about being cheated, they're concerned about being cheated, either because they've been cheated in the past and been burned, that's a different category, but a lot of them are concerned about being cheated, because that's what they would do if they were in that situation. If they were selling that used car, they'd sure cheat somebody. They wouldn't tell them about the repairs that needed to be made, so they're assuming that someone else is going to do that to them. That's what these rascals are doing. David is doing something out of kindness. 
again, remember I said there's going to be kindness going into the chapter, then it's going to turn. Well, they assume the wrong thing. They could not have given this man, Hanun, any worse advice than what they gave him. The city that's being referenced here, again, is, is probably ancient Rabbah, modern Amman, Jordan. You probably hear about Amman, Jordan on the news from time to time. That's probably the location of the place where Hanun is residing at this point, his capital in other words. But his advisors, these counselors, do him no favors at all. They're transferring their own evil thoughts onto David. And they assume that that's what David's going to do because that's what they would have done had somebody close to David died. They would have sent spies in. Unlike David, who, who has responsibility like Hanun has responsibility, Hanun exhibits nothing even remotely resembling good leadership. He is a fool. He listens to terrible advice. And then he's going to dig a hole for himself and his people that is so deep that they never get out. Look at verse 4. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. Oh, this is a grave insult. When someone sends a representative to speak to you, one representative sends people to another country to speak for the president, say, of the United States, you need to treat them the same way you would treat the president of the United States. I know it's been a long time, 1979, but that's, that's what was so bad about the Iranian takeover of the American embassy in Tehran in 1979. That was, that was an act of war. Because that embassy was sovereign United States territory. So to take it over is an insult not just to the president, or not just to the ambassador, but to the president of the United States and all the people of the United States. Well, when these guys treat David's representatives so poorly, they are insulting David and all the people of Israel. They shave their beards, or they cut their beards off, and then they cut their garments off. Voluntary shaving of the beard was an ancient sign of mourning. But forced shaving was a great insult, and it was a sign of submission, saying, I'm, I'm your master now. I'm going to shave your beard off. Again, these are cultural things that mean very little to us. But back then, what happened in verse 4 was a huge insult. In the same way, the cutting of the garments in the New American Standard euphemistically basically says, in the middle of the hips, literally it means in the middle of the buttocks, was a shameful practice that was inflicted upon prisoners of war. The exposing of the buttocks was as shameful as you could treat someone short of killing them. It's sending you back with the greatest amount of shame that they could possibly send you back. This man, Hanun, doesn't have the sense that God gave a fly to do something like this. Has he not heard of what's already happened? In fact, his behavior is so confusing that there are some Old Testament scholars that think that this chapter actually came before chapter 8. Because they scratch their heads and they say, there's no way this guy would be this stupid to treat David this way after he's already conquered everybody around except for them. I don't happen to hold that view. I think that this chapter is in its proper chronological order, and I think sometimes people can be that stupid. It doesn't matter that... <laughs> Just because you're a leader of a country doesn't mean you've got to be brilliant. 
especially in when you just happened to get that leadership because you were the king's child. When David finds out about this, if I know David and you know David by now, he's not happy. David's not happy about this. If I know David the way I think I'm starting to know David, and I, I certainly don't know him as well as I'd like to, but if I know him the way I think that I know him, had you done this to him personally, you'd have probably had a better shot of getting off than had you done it to some of his representatives. They made a big, big mistake. He has people out on the frontier that are waiting for this envoy. He doesn't wait till they get back to Jerusalem. When his intelligent sources tell him that this great insult has happened to his people in Amman, the men make their way back to Jericho, which is right about here on the map, and David tells these guys, you wait there till your beards are grown. Well, I guess that would mean at least a couple, two or three months. Anyway, and I'll take care of the rest of you. Think about this for a minute. These men were representing David. And they went and represented David well. And they were the recipients of a shameful act during the process of representing King David. So when they come back and they are treated this way, David doesn't expect them to do anything about it. David says, in effect, sit down over here. Vengeance is mine. I'll take care of this. You were representing me. I'll take care of the vengeance, and I'll do it with justice and with righteousness in a divinely authorized way. Boy, doesn't that have application to us today. We are, as we've said already in this lesson a couple of times, we are Jesus Christ's representatives. And if we represent him well and are treated poorly because of that representation, it is not our responsibility, it's not even our prerogative, to treat the people poor in return. And I usually don't comment on current events because sometimes you get burned by doing it. Something could change in the next few days. But I've got to say, I love the way the quarterback for the Denver Broncos, Tim Tebow, is handling all this abuse that he's getting. Because he's not fighting back. Some of the things have been on Saturday Night Live. This Bill Maher fellow that says some of the most horrible things this last week. I mean, vulgar and horrible things about this man for demonstrating his faith. In, in Tim Tebow's conviction, he is representing Christ. And when these people are throwing all these things at him, he hasn't responded in kind. And I love that about him. Now, I don't know how he's been behind closed doors. He may get home with his mom or dad, and he may be throwing stuff. But as soon as he gets out into the public, he is responding with love toward them, allowing room for the Father to take care of the good. And that's what David is doing here with his own servants. Step aside. You recuperate. I've got you covered. You don't have to say a word. You are representing me. I'm going to say it for you. So when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that we need to, that we need to leave room for the vengeance of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This is the characteristic of God that David is exhibiting here. The last time I taught, 2 Samuel chapter 10, was on a Wednesday night 
and the date was September 12th, 2001. This was the text that, that I chose. Other people chose different ones. Because, because at the time, the whole thing was, good night, what is the proper response to something like this? Now, ten years down the road, that can be debated whether it was proper or not. A response needed to be made as a nation. And a response was made. Here, it's not up to these servants to do the responding. If anybody's going to respond, it's the one they're representing. We ought to take that from this lesson tonight. Because if you really are serving God, you will be ridiculed at some point. To your face or behind your back. You're going to be ridiculed. Tommy Nelson, who's the pastor of Denton Bible Church, told a story at Chapel at Dallas Seminary one day that I thought illustrates this fairly well. Tommy Nelson was the quarterback for North Texas State University all, all the years that he was there. Of course, he also kind of chuckles and says they also lost every game for, for all those years that he was there. He said it's probably one of the best things that ever happened to him, but in the, the, the absolute best thing that ever happened to him is it's when he was in his college years, he accepted Christ as his Savior as a result of the uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes and became a spokesman for them and did many, many talks and led a lot of people to the Lord, went to Dallas Seminary, became the pastor of Denton Bible Church, which is a very, very large, very well-respected Bible church up in Denton. And then he said one day he went back to his college reunion. And he got off in a little group with people, and some of them were physicians and doctors and lawyers and business people by that time. And they said, well, what's, uh, what's up with you, Tommy? What did you ever, what ever happened to you? They said, well, I'm a preacher now. And he said, well, stunned silence. You're a, you're a what? He said, yeah, I'm the, I'm the pastor over here at Denton Bible Church. Now, to us, that means something. Because, I, again, I think Denton Bible Church has a couple thousand members very well respected in that part of Texas. Tommy does a great job, great sponsor of the word. In fact, some people, I don't like this so much. I know he doesn't like it, but some people say, well, he's the next Chuck Swindoll. No, he doesn't want to be the next Chuck Swindoll. He wants to be Tommy Nelson. I mean, that's who he is. He just needs to be himself. But I'm just telling you, that's the kind of guy he was. But in this group of his former friends by this time, he wasn't respected at all. And one of them actually said, according to Tommy in this chapel service, shook his head and said, you became a preacher? Man, you, you, could have been, you could have been so much. You could have accomplished so much. Why did you do that? Of course, Tommy just shrugged, but he didn't lash back because he knew he was exactly right in the middle of God's will for his life. And he was just going to let God take care of it. Now, he doesn't wish them any ill will. That's not it. It's not like, it's not like this. God, I'm not going to do anything, but I sure hope you smack me. That's not allowing for the vengeance of God either. I know what some of you are thinking. Because I know you. But that's not it. Look down at verses 6 through 14, and let's see what happens. Now, when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious, and that's an understatement to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rabab and the Arameans of Zobah, we've met them before, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Machah, with 1,000 men, and the men of Tov with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he and Joab and all the army, the mighty men, he, I'm sorry, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men, and the sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city. Again, this is probably modern-day Amman, Jordan. While the Arameans of Zobah and Rabab and the men of Tov and Machah were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, 
He selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. I've, demonstra- I've outlined this on this map this way. These three lines of attack were from the Arameans to Syria. They come down. The men of Ammon form a line against Israel as well. These are the greater soldiers, and David knows it, or Joab knows it. So he's going to set his sights with the best men of Israel against the invading Syrians coming down from the north. That kind of sets the stage for you, I, I hope. But the remainder of the people, he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arraigned them against the sons of Ammon. And here's the battle line. You see, I don't know if you can see in the back so well, but it's outlined in blue right there. And he said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come help you. Verse 12, be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do whatever is good in his sight. That's a a spiritual statement, too. We've come up here to, to mete out justice. May the Lord have his will. If this is not the right thing, then we're going to go with back to Jerusalem with our tails tucked between our legs. That's, but that's not going to happen. They're going to be victorious because God is with them in this endeavor. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans had fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. So this battle is over. And the Arameans and the Ammonites, I know these words are, are close together, that's why I put them on here. The Arameans from the north, the Ammonites, are thoroughly defeated. Then, in the following verses, we have a second wave. That's not all. We would have thought this thing would be over. Verse 15, when the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadanazar, you remember him from before? The one that got run all the way back to the, the great river? Hadanazar sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. This is a long way away. And they came to Halam and Shobach, and the commander of the army of Hadanazar led them. So what's happening here is that Hadanazar comes back from his whooping that he had had some time before. He's regrouped, and he comes back, and he's going to meet David in another battle. What's this guy's thinking? I have no idea. David's already whooped him once. But he's going to come in for some more. He sent out, in verse 16 again, and Hadanezer sent out and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam and Shobach, and the commander of the army of Hadanezer led them. Now, when it was told David, he's got that these guys are on their way. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. Verse 18, but the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers. I, I told you that there was one difference between the First Chronicles 19 passage and this one. That's where the difference is. The First Chronicles 19 passage says 7,000 charioteers. It's like what we had a few weeks ago. There is a textual issue here. And the, the, the correct rendering is most likely the First Chronicles 19 rendering. So this 700 should be most likely rendered 7,000. Let me pause just ever so briefly because our time is just about up. This shows you the kind of textual problems we have in the Bible. This affects no doctrine. It affects no, no spiritual truth, truth whatsoever. These are the kind of things that people that are skeptics go, there's all kind of uh, discrepancies in the Bible. Well, this, you know what, it doesn't shatter my faith whether it's 700 or 7,000, either one. It just happens to be a, a 
transmission error. But 7,000 charioteers, in other words, it was a great slaughter of the Arameans with 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobach, the commander of the army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadanezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them, so the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. So Hadanezer is out of the picture. Ammon still exists, but they're not the city-state that they were at one time. To summarize this all up, in these chapters, we find David leading with grace. He had been given great responsibility by God. And he leads, he exercises leadership in that, in this place of responsibility in a Yahweh-like fashion. That's what makes him great. So many of us, and I think rightly, I hope that we do, we want greatness in the spiritual realm. If you don't, something's wrong with you, frankly. This is not arrogance to want to be great in the spiritual realm. And by that I mean servants of the Lord. And to be great in the spiritual realm, then there's got to be humility of soul. It's different from the governmental realm or military realm or political realm. To be great spiritually. And I hope we all want that. It's, it's another way of saying to mature in our spiritual life. We've got to be humble and we've got to exhibit Christ-like behavior. David does this. So David is great militarily, politically, but he's also great spiritually because he, he functioned within that responsibility in a way that he should. David always had the nation's best interest in mind up to this point. These two chapters record positive events in David's life. David did the right thing. Had he allowed his emissaries to be abused like that and done nothing, it would have exhibited weakness on his part. And he had no business being the leader of that country. There is a principle that we're most vulnerable to defeat immediately following a great victory. These two chapters are great victories for David. This battle occurs probably late summer, early fall. The following spring, what is left over of the Ammonites will again rebel against David in what the Bible says is at the time when kings go to war. But this time, David stays home. 